today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Man, oh man, this just uh, continues to be a, uh, a circus sideshow. Uh, of course, uh, I'm talking about the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline that uh, we purchased off of uh, Kinder Morgan. And, and, and then moments later, a court ruling comes out and uh, basically says, no, you can't build it. And I was interesting listening to the prime ministers, you know, saying that imagine if we hadn't bought it where we'd be. Considering what's happened. Well, let's ask Dan McTagg that question. Former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs uh, critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com. He's with us now and hopefully with a steady blood pressure. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's interesting watching the Prime Minister do his little dance about this. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, What what about uh, if we hadn't bought it? Where would this be? I mean, is it adva- is it an advantage that we did buy it, even though the courts pulled the rug out from underneath them? Not at all. I mean, you're speaking nothing of nothing. There's no pipeline. Nothing's built. Um, so you know, if so, how is it better if we own it? It, it isn't. <laughs> so, I'm not sure of the logic behind that. Like, uh, if yeah. that was the case, why would we be watching the clips of the people from Kinder Morgan going in and out after they voted for all of this? Because they're <laughs> the ones that are, I'm sure, went to the bar that night and went, phew. Well, they went to more than the bar. They actually bought the bar uh, yeah, and yeah. rounds for everybody who yeah. went there. No, look, the the fact is you don't have a pipeline that's built. And uh, the fact that it's owned by the government uh, means absolutely nothing. Uh, and it will not, in fact, get built. Uh, unless, of course, uh, somehow, some way, uh, this government can pull its bootstraps up and decide that it uh, is going to proceed with recommendations that have been made by others who know this business as well, who have, you know, very strong legal backgrounds. Uh, I think one of uh, Senator Black was one of them that came out with it this morning. I believe that's his name, or he had given advice to the government earlier in the week as a constitutional lawyer, as an expert in this field, uh, someone who certainly uh, had suggested that the government would give notice to the court that it was proceeding with the building while meeting the obligations, the so-called mm. framework that was right. set out by the, uh, by the court. Let's go back to the reason for buying it, uh, because the story changed quite rapidly uh, after that. But the reason for buying it was to avoid regulations and to have the authority to put it through. Wasn't that the whole reason for buying it in the first place? It was, and it was also to uh, provide assurance that it would get built uh, without exposing uh, uh, shareholders of the company to undue risk uh, created by uh, regulatory uncertainty and political uh, uh, political games and uh, and shifting dynamics in terms of the political nature of anyone's ability to simply come forward and uh, uh, and make a complaint. Uh, the reality is that the company asked of the federal government what it would take to get this thing built and approved approved and built they followed that to a t and of course uh, received approval and proceeded in good faith that good faith was uh, was put into question and seriously uh, compromised with a series of strikes by municipalities bc government uh, the new one that came in of course notwithstanding the fact that this pipeline received more recommendations uh, and uh, conditions than any pipeline ever in the history of the world. 
So it seems odd that the whole reason we purchased this pipeline was so that it would get built and it was to, it was to be able to sidestep all of this. It was to be able to avoid all of this. And now we own it and we're stalled. We own it, we're stalled, and we put our, all of our eggs uh, in one basket. Not only the federal government prior to buying this, recognizing that it was in a bit of a, a jam, uh, decided to, to purchase this with public monies. It also precluded, uh, destroyed, uh, spiked the ability for any other pipeline to be approved, Northern Gateway, uh, Energy East, uh, and any other proposal that might have come in between has simply been scuppered by a government that said, no, we're putting all those aside and we're going to focus on the one. And at the same time, we're going to seek social license. We're going to do all sorts of things and be all things to all people. Now we found ourselves, uh, you know, really falling on our own sword. And, you know, beyond the optics of this and, you know, the advice the government uh, took from its lawyers that the federal court would, uh, would uphold the ability for the federal government to build this pipeline, you only need one person to actually come out and find objection on the court bench or somewhere, and that could be enough to cause this pipeline to uh, to to meet its end, at least for now. And it, you know, it's a real shot across the bow to those who want to, uh, you know, to uh, go out and ad lib it, or perhaps in this case, uh, you know, try to just infuse all sorts of new wonderful ideas to the approval process for future pipelines. Mm. Uh, the Trudeau government has proposed and is prepared to implement Bill C-69, which basically uh, pours cold water on anyone's ability to want to build a pipeline in the future of any type. And so, you know, this was sort of last chance saloon. And uh, uh, really, they, uh, yeah, Churchill put it well. There's no trap as dangerous as the one that you set for yourself. So the PM goes out west to try to spread the love. Is it now for him? And he said, you know, the the route to this, the route home, the route to get this thing built is to uh, to go over what the, what the court said. So is this just a case of okay, we got to check off that box, we got to check off that box, we got to check off that box, and then we're good to go? Well, someone had referred to it as whack-a-mole. Once you've satisfied this, there will be a series of others that are already being contemplated. And really, there's nothing you can do at this point. You still have a provincial government, B.C., that will you know, continue to find any way in which you can to block this pipeline. Um, you know, un- unless the federal government develops the intestinal fortitude uh, to say that uh, it will set aside any judgment and proceed notwithstanding, until it receives an injunction or a block by the, uh, by the Why don't they point. do that, Dan? Why don't they just go, yeah, okay, like we're 17, we got 17 of the 18 approvals here. Let's start rocking and rolling and we'll do it as we go. I mean, why are we not, why are we stalled? And, and like, uh, we know the message that, that sends, but as you said, from a legal standpoint, why aren't we working on this as we're moving forward? Well, they should be making a reference to the court as well as to provide legislation, which they, they said would happen a year ago. That made it absolutely unnegotiable for anybody to try to block these things. In other words, what the federal government is trying to do now is back away from what it said it would do to guarantee this pipeline. At the same time, it's allowed successive applications and claims to be uh, to be leveled against it, uh, such that if they don't, uh, you know, if they don't have the ability or the lack of desire to proceed with this in their mandate, uh, then uh, it's likely that they will be stalled down the road. And I think, you know, has a lot more to do with Perhaps the view by some liberals, and I, I recall full well, uh, on another related case back in 2000, 
when we had a justice of the Supreme Court of Canada saying that there were trendy reasons why we should uh, allow uh, certain types of excuses to permit uh, expressions that led to child exploitation, uh, the so-called Sharp case, when uh, Justice Shaw uh, sought grounds that would uh, provide artistic merit. I know it's not directly related to this. I recall my response, front page of most papers, was the federal government must invoke the notwithstanding clause. And I'm not saying that that would necessarily have to happen here because it's not a charter question. But, you know, the federal government has to exercise paramounts. And that's what well, that's what Premier Notley of Alberta is trying to get them to do, correct? Well, she's, yeah, I mean, she's, she says that, but at the same time, she's part of the cabal of group of people out there that wanted to push the social license business and mollify the green elements in this world. And certainly in this country, they're spending a lot of money to try to derail oil by saying, okay, we're going to uh, ensure that we have caps on our emissions. We're going to impose a, a, you know, a punitive carbon tax. We're going to bend over backwards. Uh, and they still believe that. If, if she didn't believe in that, she would have uh, dropped the 6.73 cent tax on Albertans, along with uh, this uh, mm. withdrawing from the national climate change uh, uh, program. So, I mean, look, uh, it's flip side of the same coin. Mm. What really has to happen here is absolute certainty coming in the next 14 months in the federal election to say we will build it or we won't build it. So we have uh, one part is humming and hawing. That's your government. You have the NDP that is totally opposed to anything to do with energy, uh, at least the petroleum and downstream industry. And you have the Greens. Well, it speaks for itself. So you really uh, are down to one choice. And I would like to certainly hear from uh, the Conservatives or perhaps Mr. Bernier, if he forms his own party, as to how they plan to put this forward. I'm all open to options in terms of a call, because I can tell them that Canadians overwhelmingly would support setting aside a decision by the court or at least addressing the issue of the court while proceeding with building. This will not be able to, no oil will flow through this new pipeline or the expanded existing pipeline for at least two years. So that gives us a lot of time for consultation. In the meantime, let's not throw, you know, a spanner into the works, uh, legal or otherwise, because I think it's clear where the prime minister is correct. This is in the interest of the country and nothing comes ahead of that. Uh, There's been chat of another route what is is that possible and and we're we're twinning a pipeline here as opposed to blazing a trail yeah. for a new one so if you have another route then don't you have two pipeline routes instead of one well you do they're twin in most cases they're right beside each other or very close to each other um, so why would you want to take them apart i mean what, <laughs> then you've got two paths instead of one you have 36 million canadians and you have 36 million different views again this is an example of where you try to accommodate Mm. A handful, you wind up uh, upsetting the ability for us to proceed. If we continue to uh, look at the particular and not consider the, the, the general concern, the principle, the general good of what is being proposed here, we're going to wind up uh, having to consult through the yin-yang. And I think, unfortunately, what the court has done is it's not well-defined. It's meaningful consultation. At the end of the day, they say that, uh, well, you know, the Native Indigenous groups do not have a veto on the pipeline. I would argue that the decision unwittingly has given them that veto. And uh, it's one of the reasons I think the federal government, while proceeding with the building, while addressing the issue of consultation, however defined, should also be making a reference to the Supreme Court to settle this matter once and for all. But it can't do that because it'd be hypocritical given what they've done with C-69 to try to be trendy. They've almost ensured that there'd be no more future purchases of, uh, of or at least investments in the downstream 
that would augment the amount of uh, production in Canada. So they've succeeded in pretty much uh, demonizing and creating a chill throughout Canada's oil and gas sector, which represents about 20% of our economy, or if you want to put it another way, about 20 to 30% of our livelihoods uh, collectively and indiv- individually across Canada. So what? So, so uh, Rachel Notley, Premier of Alberta, and the Prime Minister meet la- or earlier on in the week. Uh, the Premier says that, you know, you're never going to get consensus on this. If you're waiting for a complete yes from both sides, it ain't going to happen. What are these discussions like? Well, I think it would be as expected. Is it a cat chasing its tail here? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think he has to try to mollify uh, and try to show that he's taking middle ground and proceeding. But at the end of the day, this probably worked very, out very well for him. I don't think politically, but certainly got him out of a problem that the pipeline demonstrations, the, uh, the, uh, the, the arrests of civil disobedience and whatnot uh, won't take place, at least uh, until he has uh, another election behind him. And Apparently, 40% of Canadians think that that's pretty good. And so that's what he's done here, Dan, is he's put this whole thing on hold until the next election. Well, I think so. I so think he's he just going to tie it down and say, well, we're waiting for consultation. That'll be his, yeah, yeah. his, yeah, his standard that's he, answer. That's what he's doing. He's not, uh, there's no plan. There's no, he, look, it, it, it's been a walk in the park. Uh, it hasn't been great news, but it's been a walk in the park in two weeks. Parliament comes back, and uh, his feet will be held very close to the fire. He's exposed Canadians to a $4.5 billion risk to a pipeline that may never get built uh, without defining what his priorities are, because he seems to be all things to all people. Um, and uh, the fact is that uh, he either has to, you know, fish or cut bait. Uh, he either is for pipelines and proceeds with it willy-nilly by using the same fiat that the courts use and say, look, I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm setting it aside by parliamentary vote. Uh, this was not a charter issue. This was a legal issue. Uh, and therefore, uh, we are going to exercise our parliamentary and governmental uh, prerogatives, and we are going to set aside the decision of the court until uh, we can, uh, you know, we can see our way clear to defining uh, what meaningful consultation means, as well as recognizing that this thing's not going to get built overnight. So we've got two years. You, you know, the court has put a, 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 you know, a stop on this pipeline. Hmm. I would argue that the federal government should restart the pipeline and put a time time level or a time frame on it and perhaps seek the advice of the Supreme Court to see if it's proceeding in accordance with good faith. Uh, do you think it will do the Liberals any service to try to just keep delaying this till after the next election? Because that just makes it fodder for the election. Well, I think it gets it off the uh, the radar. Yeah. You know, it, it really gets, uh, you know, in my time, you know, you got a problem. You, this can get this can can get kicked down the road yeah. a couple of years, so you're fine. And so, what about Andrew Shear? Is this a time for everyone to get to know him? Everyone says, that, I don't know who this guy is. So, is this his chance to shine? Well, I think Canadians are really uh, upset with what's happened here. Generally speaking, on both sides, uh, it's clear who they won't be voting for. Um, that is the Liberals. So, you know, it's really a, it's up to. Uh, you know, the best thing that's ever happened to the Liberal Party in the election of Jagmeet Singh. Uh, no one knows him. He's not getting traction. The party is almost completely uh, devoid of any type of financial resources. It's unlikely it's going to uh, do very well in the next election. You have member after member uh, bailing. Uh, I suspect that that's really the uh, the hope of the Liberal Party, is that it, uh, a weak NDP guarantees mm. its election. A strong NDP guarantees its defeat. I know that personally. I saw what happened in 2011. Good point. Dan McTagg's been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com. Dan, as always, thank you for your expertise. Much appreciated. Anytime. Have a great weekend. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's health minister held an event, or, or, or sorry, Ontario's health minister at an event by the Ontario Hospital Association uh, said that hospitals will ni- uh, now ni- uh, will need to start finding efficient ways of operation. Uh, the, the Minister of Health uh, addressed uh, and said that uh, she would address overcrowding issues, but this must be done with fiscal restraint. Uh, she said that uh, the government must address the problem by acknowledging that Ontario does have a uh, difficult financial times or in difficult financial times. She said the healthcare se- uh, sector will have to find ways to operate more efficiently and that will require system transporta- uh, transformation. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Natalie Mara, Executive Director, Ontario Health Coalition and is with us now. Natalie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. So what are your thoughts on what the Minister had to say? Well, pretty concerned. Uh... That language, you know, finding efficiencies, it's always been a code word for cuts. I was just going to say, that that sounds like cuts, doesn't it? It sure does. And, um, you know, Christine Elliott, who's the new health minister under the Doug Ford government, she was involved in writing the platform for the Tim Hudak government on health care. Tim Hudak, sorry, when he was the president of the party, he didn't form government. But uh, in, in, in that plan... They wanted to take all of the hospitals in Ontario, there's about 150 approximately of them, and merge them into 40 or so ginormous hospital corporations. That, of course, would be a real problem. So we're really worried about major cuts in restructuring. During the election campaign, as you know, we were really very successful in kind of setting the key healthcare issues. Doug Ford um, had to promise to end hallway medicine, all of the parties you know, had to answer for the crisis that has been created in the hospitals. Like, we were really successful in in catapulting that issue to the top of the public agenda and keeping it in the spotlight for, you know, a year and a half leading into the election and fighting major hospital cuts in every town where they were happening and the, the rural hospital closures and so on quite successfully, like saving local services. Um, and so all of the parties had to respond to that with promises to end hallway medicine in, mm-hmm. in, you know, a different language. So at this point, we don't want to let them walk away from that promise, like let them say, oh, there's a budget crisis, and therefore, you know, we know we that we said this during the election, but we're not going to do, you know, we're going to do something different now. I think that's far too soon to let them kind of get off the hook on this. They ran an election campaign. They knew exactly what the financial situation of the province is. They're proposing massive tax cuts for the wealthy and for corporations, which will obviously affect the amount of money available to fund our hospitals. You know, those are political choices. They're not necessities. Ontario already funds its hospitals at the lowest rate in the country. And so, you know, our message is going to be back to them. No, we're not tolerating any more cuts. No more cuts and no privatization. You have no mandate for that. You ran saying you were going to fix hallway medicine, and that means you have to reopen beds now and restore services, not, not cut and privatize. Uh, what what can you do to transform this system? I mean, you know, it seems as if a lot of people are using the same language, but I guess have yeah. different ways of getting there. 
she said it will have to operate more efficiently and require system transformation. If I'm looking at the last line of the statement you guys released yesterday, uh, you talking about how all the work that you've done in order to uh, improve wait times and, and reduce the average length of stays while making things efficient. At the same time, building a sustainable and efficient healthcare system requires us to substantially rethink the status quo and develop new models and approaches to care. That sounds like the same thing, but why is everybody on two different pages? Well, Because it sounds like everybody, you know, wants to rethink the status quo and come up with new models and system transformation. We're all using key words, but no one's coming up with that model. Yeah. Well, we, like at the Ontario Health Coalition, our mandate is to protect public health care for the people, right, for the public interest. And so we're not talking system transformation. Um, That's the hospital's. CEOs and they always adopt the language of the government because it's you know just they adopt it and then they kind of turn it into what they want. But at the end of the day, system transformation has been used by every health minister. I started doing this in 1996, and Jim Wilson was health minister I think at the time, and Elizabeth Whitmer. You know, through all of the, the health ministers under the Harris and Eves government, for all of the health ministers under the McGinty and Wynne governments, they all have used the same language. Um, about system transformation. It's just code words for cutting hospitals. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the early years, they moved care to long-term care and home care. Today, that is already done. Ontario has the fewest hospital beds left of any province in the country uh, and of any um, developed nation in the world. Like, no one in the OECD has cut their beds more than Ontario has. So that transformation already happened. It happened a decade ago. Now they're just cutting things. I mean, they're closing operating rooms, so you don't transfer that to home care, long-term care. You just end up with very long surgical wait times. You know, you close medical and surgical beds, ICUs, small-town hospitals, emergency departments. This is not home care services. These are vital core hospital services. And the mass amalgamations, which I think is what's on the table here, of the hospitals into, you know, into ginormous hospital corporations... What that has meant so far has been the closure of local hospitals, the closure of local services, um, privatization of hospital services, and I don't believe Ontarians are going to fall for it again. I think we've been there. We've been there repeatedly. People are sick of it, and I don't think that they're going to fall for it. And we're going to make sure that that message gets through to government very clearly. Okay, and again, just to add to what you've said in your press release here, at the same time, building a sustainable and efficient healthcare system requires us to substantially rethink the status quo and develop new models and approaches to care. So help us decode your language. What does that mean? Yeah, that isn't our press release. I think that might be the Ontario Hospital Association's press release, which is sort of the... I'm sorry, you're absolutely correct. It is. Yeah, I stand yeah, corrected so on that. I think what they're... What oh. they're all they're doing is parroting the government's language. They always do that. So, because, so again, yeah. on that note, what is what is the solution here? Is the solution simply more money? Well, for hospitals, I mean, we certainly support the public's anger about the hospital CEOs, you know, salaries going through the roof and so on. They need to be curtailed, and that money needs to go to care. But that's not enough money. To pay to restore no. this, you know, we're way, way, way below the rest of the country, like just miles below the rest of the country. We've we've had 40 years straight of hospital downsizing in Ontario now. Uh, and so, you know, to get back to something reasonable is going to take some 
real reinvestment. And, you know, and that money needs to go to care and services, not to executives and consultants and, you know, reams upon reams of bean counters and so on. It needs to go to reopening beds, getting nurses by the bedside. We now have the fewest nurses patient of anywhere in the country so we are have, there you know, so are there in you know obviously it looks like there's there's efficiencies and there's been it, it, it's been made more efficient along the front lines but is there inefficiencies in the hospital management yeah yeah and in the processes a lot of it you know it wasn't created out of maliciousness or anything like that no but but, but because it just gets bloated that's right and every time you try and cut you got to find a way to cut, right? And so that brings in a whole team of managers and consultants and whatever to find the cuts and to count beans and so on and so forth. And before you know it, you have more people managing fewer beds and services than ever before. You know, that's what's happened. So, yeah, there is some of that for sure. Um, but, but in addition, the overall funding is just, it's the bottom of the country by every measure. I mean, we fund our hospitals at the lowest rate in Canada. And that means we have the fewest hospital beds. And so, yeah, we do need actually overall funding. But we, I think the public insists, and I think this is absolutely right, that that goes to frontline care. So this is not an era where we should be seeing cuts. I mean, I think even the liberal, you know, the, right at the very end before the election, the, the, the liberal um, health minister, Eric Hoskins, reopened 1,200 hospital beds. I mean, I think even their government that was, adamant about closing and downsizing hospitals, you know, was recognizing that it's gone too far and it just can't, you know, it's a, it's a crisis. All the ambulances get taken off the road. People how can, die, how can, know? how can these efficiencies be create, uh, be created within the administration as, as we were talking about? You see, like, again, front lines, it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty obvious. We don't need any more cuts there. But yeah. what about in those other areas? How how do you get how how do you get efficiencies in those areas? Well, they need to cancel. You know, there's all kinds of consultants and so on. And, and, wouldn't, and I guess my point I guess my point here uh, is Natalie, why aren't we doing that as well as asking for more money? Why aren't we focusing on that? Because you know, although yeah. there is an inefficiencies in the on the front lines and the front care workers and such, there obviously is within the system, and I think that's what everyone's talking about. Yeah, I think that's fair. We came up with kind of a platform leading into the election, including a whole kind of list of areas in which um, unnecessary functions were happening, like shadow billing, like all of this kind of documentation and so on that really is not improving care at all, but it's additional administrative requirements um, that are taking time away from care and taking people away from care and resources um, that could be trimmed. Uh, and so we've, we've kind of put together a whole platform of that stuff that could be uh, trimmed. And in addition, we're saying, you know, the funding levels need to be brought up to something reasonable, the right. average of the country. What can Ontario, why is Ontario in the predicament that it's in? What can Ontario learn from other provinces? Well, I think, I think that the evidence is now that the cuts have gone too far and that that actually it's not can, can I ask efficient. you can I ask you a question on that how yeah. come how come we can say that the cuts have gone too far when we can still admit that there's inefficiencies not on the front lines not where the care is transformed to the patient but in the way the hospitals run I mean the cuts to services yeah yeah that the cuts 
I mean, by by the so numbers, is it so should we by be asked that we have the fewest beds? But I think the real telltale thing yeah. is the readmission rates. So they actually measure, you know, who like if you end up back in hospital with infections or you're just too frail and too sick to be pushed out, and you end up back in within 30 days. Ontario has yeah. the highest hospital readmission rates in the country. Hmm. One in hmm. ten patients is readmitted that's discharged from a hospital. That's a huge number. It's a whopping number. And, you know, all of those people that get readmitted are in a health crisis, right? Mm, So the fact is it's not efficient to push them out so sick and so frail because they end up back in. And I myself experienced it over the the last year. I've been quite sick and in emergency departments, treated in hallways for days, you know, waiting for beds, unable to get into, you know, having surgery canceled because... Um, you know, the operating room is full and, and they don't have enough beds. You know, all of these things are really a level of care that is woefully inadequate to meet people's needs, even in emergencies. It's a crisis, and the only way to deal with it is to rebuild capacity. And in truth, it isn't efficient to have far too little hospital capacity. And it downloads the costs and the consequences and the suffering onto people. Hmm. But, you know, and so... At what cost, you know, a person's life or a person's health for for the rest of their lives? I think the people of Ontario were really clear that health care is a priority, that they want to see resources put into it, and that they want to see those resources go to actual care. And I think that that's the message that we're trying to make sure that the government can't ignore as they move forward with their consultants and all these, you know, people that they've brought in to advise them. And, you know, basically they're doing the same old, same old. Mm, yeah, like I hear you. So what can Ontario learn from other provinces? Anything? Yeah, that, that we actually have cut to the point of inefficiency. And we're seeing that in the, in the readmission rates. Are there other and provinces? in the suffering. Uh, is every province dealing with this? I mean, is every province in the same predicament Ontario is in? No, a lot of ho- provinces have double the number of hospital beds per person that we have. They all have far more nursing per patient than we do. None of them has the readmission rates we do. Like, we're worse in every measure because because we've cut so much. It's just, it's just, it's irrefutable. I mean, the bottom line is Ontario has 14,000 beds less on average than the other provinces do per capita for our population size, right? It's, it's, it's a huge shortfall. We've cut more beds than anywhere, any province of the country, any country in the developed world, no one has cut their hospitals this far. And the consequences are, if you're a senior, you get pushed out and, you know, you're waiting at home, extremely sick. All of the care needs have been dumped onto your family. They, you know, your children are working full-time, have kids themselves, sometimes aren't in the, that part of the country. Your spouse is elderly and at their wit's end, trying to deal with your yeah. dementia or what have you. Yeah. And you're waiting for up to five years for a long-term care home. You know, or you're pushed out of hospital, you're too sick, you end up back and emerge with a big infection uh, and a gaping wound, you know, and, and really very seriously compromised health. Or your surgery is cancelled on the day of, you know, even though you've traveled in from out of town, you know, you've stayed in a hotel because they don't have you in hospital overnight before the surgery anymore, they've cut that. You know, and then you have to do it all again and wait another half year or a year for your surgery. Like that, those are the consequences of the cuts. It's not, they're not efficient, not for people, they're not. 
Is this happening because we are in transformation between two systems? Or have we, we just have no idea what the new system looks like? We have transformed. The transformation that everyone's talking about is close down hospital services and move them to home care and long-term care. Ontario has closed 40,000 um, hospitals. Yeah, but I, I thought the idea here, Natalie, was to, um, you know, uh, move the, the elderly out of expensive hospital beds and into uh, something that's more comfortable and at their home and getting more home care and such, which most would agree is a great idea. But that was to free up the bed, not to close it. Yeah, only they closed the beds behind them. That's what happened. And so, you know, so we've lost all those beds, 20,000 essentially since 1990. And they opened 20,000 long-term care beds, but there were massive wait lists back in the 1990s. And so now there are 30,000 people on wait lists for long-term care. So the, so the, you know, the opening of, of, of the nursing home beds has never kept pace with the offloading of the hospital patients. That's why the wait lists are so long. Home care has expanded dramatically, but um, but I mean mainly by shortening the length of stay of patients. So post surgical care is now done at home, like wound care and so on. Yeah. So you have stomach surgery, you have a big wound, you know that you used to stay in hospital for a few days, make sure you're stable, you know, yeah. take care of that. And so on. now that's in home care. Yeah. And um, and it's you know to some extent that hasn't worked because we have very high readmission rates. Um, and but but home care has been expanded dramatically and taken on all the services it can, and now that language is just a PR. You know, it's just PR language used to cover cuts. Mm-hmm. What they're what they're actually what has been proposed for cuts in the last say half decade or more has been entire small town hospitals. Well, you're not replacing those in home care, emergency departments, um, you know, ICU units, birthing. You know, these are things that are not replaced in community care. They're just being cut from your local hospital. So during the election, uh, uh, the premier promised 15,000 long-term care beds in five years, over 30,000 over the next 10. Is that at the expense of something else? Well, they haven't come up, you know, it's not clear, but that's a really important announcement. All of the parties actually committed to increasing long-term care beds. That commitment of the long-term care beds is vital. We have 30,000 people now on the wait list. So he's talking, Doug Ford is talking 30,000 beds over 10 years. So you can see, I mean, no one is playing, yeah. planning to actually meet the needs, but it will alleviate, you know, the really very severe crisis that families are finding themselves in. So that's really important. But the real problem is that they're, you know, we want to hold them to these promises. They're good promises. And yeah. hallway medicine, build the long-term care beds. The problem that we're worried about is that they also intend to engage in massive, massive tax cuts yeah. for corporations and essentially for the wealthy. What about privatization? And that's be paid for. What about private? And we've only got about thirty seconds left. Yeah. And I should have asked this question earlier. But uh, <laughs> privatization—is there an answer there? Is it full? Is it half? Is it partial? Can we use that to somehow help this? Well, private companies aren't—you know—giving healthcare services for free. Yeah. They're charging for them, and they want to take profit out. So, you know, in terms of private clinics and so on, they charge far more. You know, think yeah. of a cataract surgery clinic, they're charging $1,000, 1500 mm-hmm. for cataract surgeries that the public system pays $500 for. Much more, and it's seniors... But I'm saying, can they, can, they, can they provide the service to the government cheaper? I mean, you know, it's not a case... Oh. You know, we can have separate privatized facilities, but they're getting paid through the government, not through the patient. Well, the evidence is that they're, they're more expensive, not yeah. cheaper. Yeah. 
So, no, not really. All right, Natalie Mayra has been with us, Executive Director, <laughs> Ontario Health Coalition, Ontario's health minister, at an event held by the Ontario Hospital Association, said the hospitals will need to start finding efficient ways of operation. Uh, the Ontario Health Coalition has said we're as efficient as we can be. We need more cash. Uh, and a plan would not would also help. Natalie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is uh, this is just, uh, how can we say it's getting bizarre? It's been <laughs> bizarre ever since it all started. Uh, let's go back just to the beginning of this week. It is another edition of This Week in Trump. So going back earlier on in the week, uh, Bob Woodward, lots of chatter about his book. And, uh, uh, of course, Woodward is uh, world-renowned for his reporting and uh, his, his work with uh, on Watergate and such and, and, and during the Nixon era and all of that. So a, a very credible guy. And he basically comes out and says the same thing that everybody's already said or thought or whatever. He's just kind of confirmed it and and, and I guess uh, a much more credible way. Uh, day after that, all of a sudden, boom, an op-ed piece uh, appears in the New York Times. It's an it's anonymous, but apparently from an insider in the White House and basically says we're doing our best to keep uh, everything rolling here and, and, and Donald Trump on the right track. And you know the contents and such. So where do we go from here? Here's a clip of the president. He was at a rally uh, last night. I believe this one was Billings, Montana. And here's what he had to say about all of this. The latest act of resistance is the op-ed published in the failing New York Times by an anomalous, really an anomalous, gutless coward. You just look. He was, uh, nobody knows who the hell he is, or she, although they put he, but probably that's a little disguised. That means it's she. But for the sake of our national security, the New York Times should publish his name at once. I think their reporters should go and investigate who it is. That would actually be a good scoop. All right, let's bring in Michael Tope, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Uh, Michael, uh, what's bigger here? The story about the op-ed piece or Bob Woodward's book, does one complement the other, or is Woodward wishing this didn't happen until a week or so later? Um, I, I don't know if they necessarily complement one another, Scott. I think that basically my feeling is, even though obviously the timing was very similar, my sense is that whoever this person was, he, she, they, etc., I think that they were planning it. I think that they were probably planning it to come out at a particular time this year. I don't know if they necessarily had something they were going to tie it to, but, but Bob Woodward's book is probably the easiest thing to do. Now, could it have also been a little bit of a push to move this a bit faster? Could this anonymous individual have sort of said, well... With all the press that Woodward's book is getting, which I think most people would have expected, and the fact that the president is getting hammered very badly for a number of the passages that are in the book, which I think, again, most people would have assumed when we first heard that Woodward's book was coming out, maybe it was the caveat to sort of move it along a little bit faster. I don't deny that. But do I think that the two are necessarily aligned? No, does Bob Woodward, to answer your final question, mind the fact that this has actually come out, you know, a few days before his book is officially released? No, because actually it's just giving him extra press. I think right. he's actually probably happy with it. All right. So let's talk about the fact that this is an anonymous letter. 
I guess one of the defenses against this could have been, well, who's to say it's an, even an insider? But Donald Trump doesn't even see, seem to be going there. Instead, he's just, de- you know, uh, determined to find out who the culprit is. Mm-hmm. But if this person honestly felt this way, why not put their name to it? Why not take the hit and fall on the sword and 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 move on with their life? Well, would this have killed their career that much? I mean. Uh, it, it probably would have made them a star. Why not put your name to this? Or a load star. <laughs> there you, know, you go. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. No problem. No, it, it's a good question, and quite frankly, everyone else is asking it too. And I've been asked it, you've been asking it, and I don't think a lot of people really know the answer. The problem is we don't know who it is. We don't know how high up or how senior this individual is. I mean, it's been told that it's a senior official in the Trump administration. Some of us assume it's in the cabinet, but there are also many senior officials who are not in the cabinet. Um, There have been reports that 50 possible names have been identified as the source of this anonymous op-ed or letter, if you wish. There are others who say it could be several hundred, that it would take, I don't know, weeks, months, years to figure out who it is. Because obviously everyone is clammed up, nobody has said anything, and no one plans to say anything. So the fact so that it is so anonymous, does that, ha- does that make it less credible? Um, I certainly think it, I don't think the person is helping his or her cause all that much by doing so. I think it would have actually been a lot better for the person to have resigned from the Trump White House, revealed his or her identity, and, you know, could have done the same thing, written an op-ed to the New York Times that, you know, he or she had chosen, and go from there. I think the problem is the anonymous op-ed, sure, it creates a lot of media buzz. It's created a lot of interest in terms of who done it, who's involved in it. You know, it's like an addition of Clue, but just for politics. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think it was Colonel Mustard with the, <laughs> with, the, with the candlestick in the library. I think that, unfortunately, in this one particular case, I think my own sense is that it is someone very senior, that it is someone that the New York Times took the extra step to protect, realizing that that person, if his or her identity was revealed, could cause a, an enormous media storm and an enormous amount of controversy. So I think there is a reason why it's done. Like, if it was a senior person at a bit of a lower level, I'm not really sure it would have mattered all that much. Hmm. That's why my sense is, uh, contrary to what some people who are in my position, both in Canada and the U.S., are saying, although some are saying it, I think it is someone rather senior. I'm not saying it's a Mike Pence or a member of the Trump family, but it could be someone in the cabinet level that, you know, many people just would never have thought would have either had the guts or even the initiative or taken the initiative to do something like this. All right, so now everybody's trying to decode this uh, letter and, yeah. and and go through it linguistically and trying to figure out who it is. There's been a, an obvious comparison to Vice President Mike Pence because yeah. of the term lodestar. That being said, you were a former writer for the Prime Minister. Yeah. He's not writing his own stuff. Should we perhaps be looking at the person writing this as opposed to the Vice President? Your thoughts? Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I would really be stunned if Mike Pence, the vice president, had anything to do with it, or if any staffer associated with Mike Pence had anything to do with it. And the fact of the word lodestar, which basically means um, a star that leads or a leading light, so to speak, that's a term that, yes, is associated with Mike Pence, and people had fun, including CNN, finding a whole bunch of different clips, pasting them together and sending them out like that. 
But as Bill Crystal, the Weekly Standard, said recently, uh, Kevin Harnett, who is also a senior official in the Trump administration, uses that term. Hmm. Other people use that term. So to point the finger directly at Mike Pence, while it may be fun and, you know, obviously gives people and organizations like CNN, Fox, CNBC, MSNBC, etc., you know, something to talk about on a regular basis, I think we have to be more realistic about it. Yes, Mike Pence is the only person in the Trump White House who is protected. The vice president cannot be fired. There is no way, in no way, shape, or form. It cannot be done. But come on, really? Do you think that Mike Pence, who's been a loyal fiscal and social conservative and a loyal member of the Republican Party, would do something like this with the New York Times, which, while well, he may not call them the failing New York Times, he doesn't particularly love all that much? Please, I think we have to look elsewhere. So will we find out who this is? I mean, let's be honest, it's a newspaper that has the source, and I'm sure all the reporters are trying to find out what the senior staff know. So this is only in the New York Times' best interest, eventually, to let this cat out of the bag, is it not, or, or, or not? Well, yes and no. I mean, you're right. The New York Times reporters are looking into what the New York Times editorial board is protecting. I mean, that's, that's something you just don't see not only in the real world, you don't see it in fantasy either. It's very, very hard to believe. Um, so, but where, so Donald Trump is right that when he suggests that the New York Times should look into it, well, they are. They're, it's basically just that the editorial board and probably a few senior editors, one guesses, are just sort of protecting the whole secret. Um, but at the same time, will they discover it and will they be able to find the, uh, the person behind it? The difference between the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times and say other issues like Deep Throat, who later turned out to be Mark Felt, although we didn't find out for roughly about 45 years, the difference there is that Mark Felt was an informant. He provided or gave information to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, whereas they went on to write those pieces on behalf of what he was saying, or basically using his words and ideas to craft a a series of articles for a long period of time about Watergate. The difference here, which is completely unusual and has never happened before in the history of journalism, is an anonymous op-ed written by someone who claims to be right directly in the White House, and he or she, either with the help of others or on their own, have actually constructed this and are basically just going to sit there, you would imagine, for a while, and just refuse to acknowledge that they, you know, he, she, they were behind it until someone finds out. I think it will be easier to find this out than Deep Throat, A, because techniques are different, B, because we have social media and other people who sort of can investigate this, and C, because I think it's harder to hide a secret today than it was in the 1970s. I would be stunned if this took many months to reveal, but I wouldn't be surprised if it took, yeah, you know, a few weeks, a couple months. But believe me, at some point in time, they are going to find out who it is, And not only will the president of the United States have a conniption when he finds out who it is, many other people will, too. And while it may not be treason, as Donald Trump said, it's the wrong word to use. It's not treasonous. It is definitely a breach of, you know, security within the White House. And it is the worst possible thing. As you pointed out, I was a member of the prime minister's office for Stephen Harper. Political staffers are not supposed to be above the law or above the leader or above the party leader, if that's all specifically is. They're supposed to work within the institution that they are, whether it be in the opposition benches or, say, in this case, in the White House. 
You're not supposed to have your own agenda. You're not supposed to operate differently and claim that you're trying to bring out the best ideas that Trump has, but at the same time working against him as an informal resistance to ensure that his worst ideas, concepts, policies, views never get through. That is utter madness. Is this, could this all backfire? Um, Does this play in favor of Donald Trump because it's anonymous? Him saying, see, look, they're all out to get me. I mean, could this play right into his hands? Absolutely. And he's in that. I think that's really what the strategy is right now for the president of the United States and his senior advisors. Yes. I mean, for the people who were not involved in this anonymous op-ed, naturally, they don't want the point, the fingers pointed at them. They don't want to discuss this issue, and they would much rather that this individual reveal himself or herself and just let this cat out of the bag or the mystery end pretty quickly. But I think that basically for Donald Trump, this is the best thing he could have ever hoped for. He doesn't want, shall we say, a rat in the White House. He doesn't want someone there who is working against him. I mean, that's not to his benefit. It wouldn't be to the benefit of any president of the United States. But on the other hand, he can sort of make this out to say, look, this is all kind of a plot against me. People yeah. are conspiring against me. The New York Times, or shall we say the failing New York Times, which hates me, did this on purpose with the help of somebody else. And when I catch this individual, you know, I'm going to lay down the law against him. Yeah. I think actually as a strategy, Scott, this is brilliant. This is the easiest thing he could have ever done. I believe so. much better if the person had just revealed himself or herself immediately. I believe 100% with you on that. Michael Tobis with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. As always, Michael, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.